This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 17, Husserl's Children, Searching for the Other. Today we're going to stay with the same philosophical issues that were at stake in the second sex, and we're going to revisit them from, let's call it a gender-neutral perspective. So what's at stake here in these discussions is intersubjectivity. So we're moving from a long history of epistemological questions that are obsessed with the distance between the subject and the object. You know, and now we're moving to the relationship between subject and subject. And again, what's always lurking in the background is Hegel's master-slave dialectic. So you may want to go back to that reading from the very beginning of the course and reread those few paragraphs in Hegel on the master-slave dialectic. Once they're out there, they kind of haunt everyone, and everyone is going to keep dealing with the master-slave dialectic. Um, so for, for Simone de Beauvoir to overcome alienation, remember how everyone is struggling with the problem of alienation. The great problem of modernity is the problem of alienation, that's universal. But how you understand what this alienation is, the form it takes, the causes of it, the ways to overcome it, varies a lot. You know, for Marx, it's very structural. You know, if you're a factory worker and you're performing a repetitive task on the assembly line, you're alienated from the products of your labor and you're alienated from yourself because you are selling yourself by the hour you've turned yourself into a commodity. Um, and Simone de Beauvoir is talking about alienation because women is used instrumentally by man, you know, as a mode of the self-affirmation of man. This is really, this is like exactly what they do in the Barbie movie at the end where Ken is searching for his own identity and Barbie is saying to Ken, like, you're Ken. No, Ken is me. Ken is me. Like, you could reread this all through, you know, the second sex. You know, she's worried that women is used instrumentally by man the way a slave is being used by a master. And... As Hegel says about the master, the master's never ultimately going to be satisfied anyway. So it's a kind of lose-lose proposition. You know, and Simone de Beauvoir saying liberation only comes for either master or slave with this kind of mutual recognition. Okay. But what is constant is this idea that there's always an other, that the fundamental notion of the category of otherness is part of how we experience the world. And we'll come back to this again when we get to Levinas. So the idea is there's not only an I, a self of consciousness, and then there's a world, and how do we get there, but there's also an other the other subject that's an other. You'll often see the other capitalized with an O because it becomes, again, a philosophical category. An other, some other, other subject. Um, otherness is a fundamental category of human thought. Okay. Um, so let me now kind of go back and take you into this problem from the point of view of phenomenology. The reason why I call this lecture Husserl's Children is one, because I'm trying to kind of squeeze in several people in the same lecture, which is always difficult and a little bit tricky, but because there's something they have in common across their very different readings of this problem, which is that they are the kind of second generation of phenomenologists, you know, people who have gone through studying with Heidegger, I'm sorry, studying with Husserl and studying phenomenology and being consumed by this problem 
of, of how the subject reaches the object and the idea of in the beginning is the relationship. Subject and object are connected in such a way that they cannot be disconnected. And they're all going to, in different ways, come to feel that something was missing, that something is inadequate, and that something that's missing, which will now seem very obvious when I tell it to you, they're like, did it take a whole generation to figure this out? Um, was that like, well, what happens when the other object we're looking at is actually another subject? You know, the way I look at, you know, the way I look at Jenya there is different from the way, you know, I look at a cup or different from the way I look at a pen or different from the way I look at a hammer. What happens when, when the object is another subject? And Husserl's phenomenology starts seeming very impoverished on this topic because it seems to just view other subjects as just kind of variations of objects for my consciousness. Um, and so Husserl, you know, despite intentionality, which connects us to the world, has a certain intersubjectivity problem, which he's going to claim to have solved in the fifth Cartesian meditation. Um, I personally don't find how he thinks he solved it very satisfying, but we'll, we'll leave that aside. Um, to be a transcendental ego for Husserl is to be a subject, to be a consciousness that recognizes everything else as an object for my consciousness. So how do we now develop an understanding of the other that is somehow goes beyond the other as an object for my consciousness? Um, well, Husserl's initial answer um, and the kind of point of departure of the whole discussion is an epistemological understanding of intersubjectivity. So understanding the relationship between I and other by a kind of association or pairing or analogy. We can imagine that the other is also a subject by analogy with our own subject. Um, we can imagine what Husserl will call a community of egos, a community of monads. So each I is still kind of its own thing, but we can imagine that there are other ones like ours. And Husserl says all of these, these community of egos is what constitutes one identical world. The constitution of the world, he says, essentially involves a harmony of the monads. Now, these other monads, these other, you know, singular egos unto themselves do provide for Husserl also an important epistemological function, not only that we understand them epistemologically by analogy with our own ego, um, but that they confirm that we're all living in a world together. Remember, we talked about, about the problem of knowledge you know, and the example of the cube. Phenomenologists love the example of the cube. Um, and so, you know, or think about a couple dice that you put on the table or one die. Wherever I stand vis-a-vis -vis that cube, there is no position from which I get to see all six sides at once. There is no such privileged epistemological position that gives me access to all six sides at once. From wherever I am, I can only see a couple sides. But I'm going to be able to figure out that there are six sides. And one of the ways that confirms that there are six sides is that I can stand on one side and Daniel can stand on the other side and Sophia can stand on this side, Sebastian can stand on this side, and we confirm the existence of the objects. So knowledge is, knowledge is intersubjective in that way. 
You know, I, I often use that analogy when I talk to graduate students about what does it mean to write about the history of your own nation or ethnic group? What does it mean to write from the outside? What does it mean to write from a kind of half inside, half outside position of an emigre? You know, and I'm always coming back to Husserl. Like there is no position of perfect access to all six sides. Whatever position you're in, you're going to see some things more clearly and some things less clearly. That's why there's more than one of us. Um, that's why we also learn from one another. <laughs> that's why we pool our knowledge, because how, wherever you're standing, you need those other, other points of view. So other subjects provide other viewpoints. Um, they also provide confirmation of the fact that there's only one world. You know, so I'm looking at the cube from this side and Matthew's looking at it from the other side, but we can confirm that we're looking at the same cube in the same world. You know, and so Husserl asks this rhetorical question. He says, is it conceivable that two or more separate pluralities of monads, i.e. pluralities not in communion, coexist, each of which accordingly constitutes a world of its own, so that together they constitute two worlds that are separate ad infinitum, two infinite spaces and space-times? And he says, no, manifestly, instead of being a conceivability, this is a pure absurdity. You know, so the fact that we're seeing the same things but from different angle is confirmation of the fact that we are living in one world together. Okay, now Husserl lays out, you know, as much as he ever really kind of gets into in his published work, Intersubjectivity, all this in the Fifth Cartesian Meditation, if anyone wants to pursue it further. But it remains the fact that in Husserl's original phenomenology, the focus is still always on the transcendental ego and the singular I. Like the, the I, my centrality to myself in phenomenology is not a moral statement. It's not normative. It's just a phenomenological fact. Um, we, we have no access, we have no direct access to what is going on kind of originally primordially in someone else's experience. And so Husserl says the only conceivable manner in which others can have for me the sense and status of existent others consist in their being constituted in me as others. So the other is still in some ways an object for my consciousness, even when the other is a subject. There's a kind of unique apodicticity to the ego. So everything, when you put everything else in brackets that may or may not exist in the phenomenological reduction, the only thing that does not go in brackets is your I, your transcendental ego. So other egos out there go in brackets. You know, the only thing that necessarily non-contingently exists is the, is the I you're starting from. So there's a distinct absence of other selves in our own. Husserl calls this, this the, the Eigenheit or the Eigenheit sphere, the sphere of ownness. Um, and in essence, the phenomenological reduction is a kind of decision to take into consideration only what is given to me, only what is my own, das mir eigene. And that's what kind of takes us into the deepest levels of the interiority of consciousness. But there is a feeling, um, there's a feeling among Husserl's students that something was just inadequate about this, that it just didn't feel satisfying, um, that looking at other selves as objects just felt kind of existentially thin. Um, and in some ways, all of Husserl's students were going to have this preoccupation of how can we get to a thicker understanding of, of intersubjectivity. 
Now, the way Heidegger works this problem, which is, is very complicated, um, but let me just throw out a couple very basic things, is Heidegger's notion of, so Heidegger, so remember there's Dasein, and that's being there. And Dasein is always already in the world. And that world, Heidegger says, here's world, Welt, that world is a, a, a Mitwelt, and Mit is just the German word, preposition with. Yeah. So the world we're always already thrown into is a with world, and Dasein is always already Mitsein, which is being, being with. Put those little hyphens in. So Mitsein is just being with. And Heidegger says, in some ways, being, being with is always already part of our thrownness because we're not thrown into this world, you know, in a world without other people. You know, we're always already in a world with other people. So in some ways, intersubjectivity is prior to subjectivity, you know, in, in Heidegger's model, because we're always already in this world with other people. And the only moment you get in Heidegger, that you are purely disarticulated from this Mitwelt and from Mitsein is the moment of your death. And that's, that's then what Heidegger calls Jemeinigkeit. I put all this in your handout. Jemeinigkeit. Okay. Which is mindness. So you're di you, everybody dies alone the purity of that moment of dying alone. But in the world, we're in the world with other people. So the world, Heidegger says, is the one that I share with others. The world of Dasein is a Mitwelt, is a with world. Being in, meaning being in the world, is being with others. Now Heidegger then puts the focus, the kind of the Schwerpunkt, like the, the crux of being in time, on how we are in the world with others, and then that's that distinction between authenticity and inauthenticity. You know, and then the question people ask, understandably, you know, is that, is there a way in a kind of Heideggerian philosophy to authentically be in the world with others? Because remember, for Heidegger, inauthenticity is when we fall into the das man selbst the self that is everyone and no one, um, that's sometimes translated the they self, the impersonal self, the conformist self, when you just go along with what other people are doing. And that's not following a single person. It's everyone kind of conforming. You know, it's a kind of generalized inauthenticity. And so there's a, a crux of being in time is that when you're with other people, you're, you're curious, you're gossipy, you chatter a lot. He calls that gareda, like talking about nothing. Um, there's a lot of ambiguity where nobody really takes hold of clear definitions, where nobody is really resolute and decisive about anything. And that's when you're kind of with other people and you're kind of forgetting about your authentic condition. To live authentically for Heidegger really involves this moment of profound loneliness because you need to be shaken into this understanding that your condition is being towards death, you know, and that therefore we are always already proceeding towards nothingness, that that gives us a feeling of not being at home in the world, this unheimlichkeit, this uncanniness, and this inauthenticity then 
is this is is a kind of it's not just loneliness it's a kind of ontological queasiness when you realize the instability of your existence you know and how you're proceeding you know to die alone so the question then you know the question is then begged like well how does how how can one be in the world authentically with other people um in the heideggerian model okay um so authenticity is always in kind of implying a kind of aloneness to face one's death alone. Um, killing is intersubjective, but dying is is yamanikite. Dying is solitary, and really most of being in time is concerned with the relationship between einsiendes, like a being, and being as such, as opposed to really being focused on the relationship, you know, between two beings. Okay, I'm now going to take you to uh, Edith Stein, um, who's who's a, a philosopher I, I I've grown to appreciate more and more over the past decades, and who's a very interesting story, and a whole course could be taught on her. And I'm just going to give you a little introduction now. She's um so she was born in the the late 19th century. She comes from a very large Orthodox Jewish family in what was then Prussian Breslau, German Breslau, and what is now Polish Wrocław. Um, her father dies when she's very young, and she's the youngest. Um, and there are lots of older siblings and lots of cousins, and a very big family, and everybody's involved with everybody else's lives. Um, like Simone de Beauvoir, who's raised in this Catholic family and loses faith as a teenager, Edith Stein loses faith as a teenager. Um, she breaks with Judaism, she becomes an atheist, and she is looking for truth. She's looking for pure truth. Um, she goes to study psychology, she's dissatisfied, and then she hears about Husserl and the phenomenology that he's teaching in Gettingen and how there is a bridge to reach epistemological clarity and absolute certainty. And so despite her vast entanglements, you know, in the lives of her sisters and brothers-in-laws and nieces and nephews and cousins and aunts and uncles and all of these people in her big family, she just takes off um, to go study with Husserl to try to find her way to this epistemological clarity. Um, okay. So 1913, just before the First World War, she goes to Gettingen to study with Husserl. And she encounters there a real community, a community of, I don't know, a dozen or so students of Husserl who, are absolute, who have been drawn there from all different places, you know, drawn to the slogan of to the things themselves, believing that this is their chance to find a way to clarity. And it's a very close-knit circle. Um, and those relationships are going to become very important. Um, and she's having great time there. <laughs> um, and then the First World War breaks out, um, August 1914. And she is a fanatical German patriot. Um, she's a fanatical German patriot, and she immediately says, okay, my own life now is nothing. Everything I have belongs to Germany. I will sacrifice my life in a moment. Um, it was suddenly, she says, crystal clear and evident to me on the day that Germany goes to war. Today, my individual life has ceased, and all that I am belongs to the state. It's a very dramatic statement. 
And she, like, she'll maintain this all through the war. Um, So she immediately leaves the university and volunteers to be a nurse for the German army. And she is sent to work at a Red Cross hospital in Austrian Moravia. Um, And there's very, she describes this in a very interesting way in her memoirs, if anybody wants to commune with this period. Um, And she's then given leave, and while she's waiting to be called up again, which for unclear reasons she, she isn't, although she was totally devoted to this work, she goes back to Husserl to work on her dissertation. In the meantime, Husserl accepts this chair of philosophy in Freiburg, so he moves from getting into Freiburg in 1916 um, during the First World War. Um, and he has almost no students left because everybody has gone off to war. Everybody has volunteered, his kids have gone off to war, his two young sons, Adolf Reinach, who was the one, that, the charismatic teacher and the senior graduate student who was the one who really pulled the group together, who was the great hope of phenomenology, he also volunteered. I mean, everybody very enthusiastically goes off to war. Um, his Polish student, Roman Ingarden, who's in a very difficult position because there currently is no Polish state, um, and it's not really clear, is, is there going to be and what side will Poland be? on, and Garden goes back um, to the Polish lands, let's call them, and tries to volunteer for Polsudski's Polish legions, which is a kind of, you know, nascent Polish force in process, but he has a heart condition, and he's turned down. And as a result of that, he also goes back to study with Husserl. So from all these students that were there, it's Roman and Garden and Edith Stein, who end up um, in Freiburg with Husserl. And Edith Stein then decides that she is going to write her dissertation about the problem of empathy, you know, which she uses the word Einfühlung, um, which is literally like to feel into. We don't have this word exactly in English. I mean, the closest is empathy, but it's literally a kind of to feel and to feel in, as if you were kind of going inside someone or something else. And there are many interesting things about this dissertation, which has been translated into English, and you could read it. Um, the, the literary quality is kind of dry, but the points are there. Is that all of her, all of Husserl's obsession with the transcendental ego, which essentially ha- took up no room in space, right? It's like this spaceless point, and the transcendental ego is like Vidkatsi calls it. That it's like a you know glasses and eyes and a, and a beard, you know, floating in space. You know, Edith Stein comes back and says, "Okay, we need a body. We can't do fi- we can't think about a subject without a body. We can't think about this transparent eye." Just pure consciousness. What is pure consciousness? Pure consciousness has no body, you know. And suddenly she's very concerned about the body, you know. And it's impossible to understand this without really understanding what she experienced in that hospital, because she was with these German soldiers who were just gruesomely, grotesquely wounded, you know. And this was like this was it was pre-penicillin, you know. It was when they didn't have anesthesia. It was like they were doing all sorts. I won't go into lots of graphic details. You could read about it. But, you know, she's seeing, every single day she's there, she's seeing the body, she's seeing the body scarred, she's seeing the body in pain, she's seeing the body in agony, she's seeing the body, seeing people struggle with their bodies, she's seeing people die, Um, she's seeing people survive but kind of lose their minds from pain, you know, and so she comes back and she's like, okay, we can't think philosophically without thinking about the body, we have to really think about the body. And so she goes and works on this dissertation. Um, She also becomes Husserl's assistant, um, trying to 
take his, you know, thousands of pages of incomprehensible notes um, in which he's trying desperately to articulate himself and never quite can and turn it into the next book. I mean, that, that tragedy in some sense of Husserl's life is that someone who is obsessed with clarity and distinctiveness, which he keeps repeating, Klarheit und Deutlichkeit, Klarheit und Deutlichkeit, which is clarity and distinctiveness, is basically incapable of writing a single clear sentence, you know? And it's this like Herculean work that she's working with him trying to like edit this. Um, and at the same time, she's waiting to be called back to the army, and she's completely invested, you know, in her romantic vision of, of Germany. I'm going to quote to you from this letter that she writes in 1917 to Roman in Garden. Um, this idea of the folk, of the people, you know, the, the people in this case who belong to Germany. Um, and she's writing to him, and she's writing in German, and he's a Pole. He's a, he's a Pole who also speaks German. She says, I am very happy that your understanding of Germanness is progressing. You are in love with the Polish soul. That was the precise phrase that occurred to me also as I sought recently to clarify what is essentially different in our approach to the state and to people. You see, I can no more be in love with Germany than with myself. For after all, I am, I am myself it that is part of it. People are persons who have life, who are born, who grow, and who pass away. It is a life beyond our own, although it includes ours. We can become aware of our relationship with the holes to which we belong and can voluntarily submit to it. Um, so she's this idea of totally giving herself to the nation, to the state, is there as she is working out this idea of the relationship between self and other. Okay. Um, so I don't have a whole lot of time. Let me tell you the first, so she, she brings in the body in a very profound way in this dissertation. And she makes a distinction that also can't quite be made in English between the body as a libe, which is the body as a kind of living body as it's experienced from the inside, and the body as corporate, the body as a kind of body, as an object that you can see from the outside. So like when you touch your own hand, it's different from touching somebody else's hand. You only have experience of one libe, one living body. You know, other living bodies you only experience as corporate, you only experience them as the outside. So she's looking at what is primordial and originary and can only be understood as our experience of our own body versus how we understand other bodies. You know, and she's going to use this to say that there's something like empathy that epistemologically allows us to imagine that that corpor we see, that other body we see is also a living body like our own that is also experienced from the inside just not by ourselves and we do that by analogy by, by pairing by empathetic awareness um, okay the the another epistemological function of empathy she says is to give me my own self because then this I is not only something presented to me I am also something presented to it so by empathetic awareness, by imagining how we look to somebody else, we come to understand that we are not only a subject for ourselves, but also an object for other subjects. You know, Satra is going to take up this idea as well. Um, so this idea of empathy that allows us to see that we are also an object of cognition of other subjects, um, which is true both physically and, and psychically. Um, 
From the viewpoint, she says, of the zero point of orientation gained in empathy, I must no longer consider my own zero point as the zero point, but as one point among many. Um, and so I learned to see my living body as a physical body like others by imagining somebody else looking at me. As I interpret the other physical body, the other person I see as having a body like mine, I come to consider myself an object like this, like it. I do this in reflexive sympathy. You know, so I make this kind of imaginative leap. And she says, I am only fully given to myself, that's given in that phenomenological sense, reality is, is given to me, um, through when I see myself as an object. So it's still very egological. It's still all about my understanding of myself. It's still all about my epistemological accomplishments. But through empathy, I become aware of myself as others are aware of me. I become given to myself you know, as a psychological individual in a full sense. So empathy can lead us to increase self-knowledge. Our imperfect self-understanding can be corrected by an openness to others' observations of ourselves. You know, by looking, imagining how somebody else is seeing us empathetically, we get an increased clarity about who we are. Um, it's possible for another to judge me more accurately than I judge myself, to give me clarity about myself. She says, for example, another might notice how I look around for approval as I show kindness, while I myself think I am acting out of pure generosity. You know? And by making this leap and seeing myself as he sees me, I gain this self-knowledge. So that the first epistemological the function of empathy here is this increase in self-knowledge. And then the second epistemological function of empathy is realism. It's, it's just confirming that the world exists. Because not only am I seeing that water bottle, but you're also seeing the water bottle, and Daniel's also seeing the water bottle. Right? So, like the, the confirmation of the fact that we are in the world. The perceived world and the world given empathetically are the same world differently seen. Um, and so this, the, this makes the appearance of the world dependent on individual consciousness, but the appearing world, which is the same however and to whomever it appears, is made independent of consciousness. Were I, she says, imprisoned within the boundaries of my individuality, I could not go beyond the world as it appears to me. But since we have this confirmation through empathetic awareness of what other people are, saying, are seeing, this confirms the existence of the world. Um, so it's an empathy that asserts the possibility of the world, of a coherent truth, you know, and maintains this very modernist position that there is a unified holistic truth out there connecting us to one another. That empathy is confirmation of realism, that the world really does exist. You know, which is where she's really trying to get to. She needs to know that the world really exists. Um, okay, these ideas that she lays out, and she's not, well, I'm gonna move on to Satra. Edith Stein is not the writer that Satra is. Satra's a much better writer, but she lays out a lot of the ideas that he will later become much more famous for. Uh, Satra sees the moral problem here with treating the other as, as an object for my consciousness. Um, and he sees, he sees the moral and existential 
risk in too thin a notion of the other very quickly. Um, and what he is going to come up with also in a very like following the visual preoccupations and the visual metaphors that are so central to phenomenology, he will come up with this idea of the gaze, le regard, the gaze of the other. At each instant, Sartre says, the other is looking at me. And you'll see this phrase come up, you know, at different times, the gaze. You know, the gaze is a Satrian phrase, the gaze of the other. The other is, is looking at me. The, and that's the gaze that permits the subject to realize that the other is also a subject. So like when I, when I look at Sophia over here, like, and she looks back at me, when I see her looking at me and I realize that I am an object for her consciousness, that makes me understand that this is not, Sophia is not just another object, she's also a subject. Otherwise, I, could not be, I couldn't be an object for an object. I can only be an object for another subject. Does that make sense? I know it's a lot of subject-object here. But so it's when the other is looking at me as an object that I am then shaken into awareness of the other's subjectivity. Um, hey. Um, I have observed, Satra says, that I cannot be an object for an object. A radical conversion of the other is necessary if he is to escape objectivity. Um, the other cannot look at me as he looks at the grass. It is in and through, Satra says, the revelation of my being as object for the other that I must be able to apprehend the presence of his being as subject. For just as the other is a probable object for me as subject, so I can discover myself in the process of becoming a probable object for only a certain subject. Okay. So this idea of being seen by the other. Um, and this enormous implications that it has for Satra, because when you realize that the other is also a subject, he says that the whole world then slides to a different place. There's a radical decentralization that occurs. You know, that being shaken into this awareness of the other's subjectivity is this moment when the appearance of the other in the world, he says, corresponds to a fixed sliding of the whole universe to a decentralization of the world, which undermines the centralization which I am simultaneously affecting. Okay. And Satra will also say that there's no, there's no real self-knowledge without this recognition from the other subject. So there's also a lot of Hegel, that this idea of recognition, that in order to affirm your subjectivity, you also need this kind of recognition. So everybody is kind of also playing here with the implications of the master-slave dialectic. To what extent can you ever be a subject unto yourself, and to what extent do you all always need that recognition from the other? If you forget about this, just like remember the Barbie and Ken theme. Um, it's all about can Ken ever be Ken without recognition from Barbie like what does it do you need you know can you ever be who you are unto yourself without some kind of other recognition 
Um, now, Satra will play with this idea in lots of different ways. Um, you may have noticed in existentialism, humanism, he has this sudden, very Kantian moment where he says, in deciding for myself, I'm really deciding for everyone. And you're like, wow, that's very inconsistent. I mean, that's Satra kind of going back to Kant's categorical imperative, you know, and saying you should always act in such a way that it would be good if the maxim of your action became a universal law, i.e. you should always act in such a way that you ask yourself what would happen if everybody we're acting according to the principle I'm acting now. And if it would be a disaster, you're probably not acting morally. You know, and that's where you can feel Satra kind of get, get scared of the implications. Um, but also this idea that, this idea of our being mutually implicated in the world. He also has this fantastic play um, called No Exit in which he has the famous statement, hell is other people. Um, okay, I want to move on to Levinas, so I won't dwell on that more, but you should all see the play. Um, you should commune with Satra. Let me just put in my little plug for Edith Stein, who we'll come back to later on. That, like, she really did come up with a lot of these ideas long before Satra, for which he's much more famous. Um, I'm not saying he stole them from her. I mean, he's certainly a much more elegant writer. Um, but that dissertation, which was not very glamorous and was read by very few people at the time, was really kind of very important at the moment it was written. Um, okay. I now I want to move on to Levinas, um, who is a little bit younger. He was born in 1906 in Kaunas, which is present-day Lithuania. It was then in the Tsarist Russian Empire. Um, and Levi Levinas is a fascinating figure. I mean, I, I hope some of you will go on to study Levinas. Let me just put in a little plug as a footnote. So I have this fantastic philosopher colleague who runs the Levinas, a Levinasian philosopher who runs the Levinas Center in Lithuania. And he is, he is, here, um, he, he is here as a visiting, visiting professor this year, visiting scholar um, in our Baltic Studies program. Um, his name is Viktor Spaknikievas. Um, so if anyone wants to work on Levinas, you should all go talk to Victorus because he's, he's one of the great Levinas specialists and he's a very entertaining conversationalist and he has perfect English and he'd be happy to talk to you. Okay, um, so Levinas. Levinas also is a very interesting biography. So he's from Kalinas. Um, during the First World War in 1914, the family emigrates to what was then Kharkov um, in the Tsarist Empire, now in Ukraine. The family then returned to Lithuania. Um, after it becomes Lithuania, as is all very complicated because lots of borders are moving. But he then goes to study in 1923 in France. And he is going to become one of those four, um, one, one of those four native Russian speakers who, do the, who, who play the crucial roles in translating Husserlian phenomenology into France and into French both culturally and linguistically. It's very interesting. Like native Russian speakers actually do quite a bit of the, the German to French translation, um, including Levinas. Okay, so he goes then, so he first goes to study philosophy in France, and then at the end of the 1920s, he goes to Freiburg to study with Husserl. Um, he also attends Heidegger's seminar because Husserl is just becoming professor emeritus and retiring at the time, and Heidegger is his successor in this chair. And, Levinas is absolutely drawn to this to the things themselves slogan. He also, as I told you in a previous lecture, is the one who, you know, in order to get a seat at one of Heidegger's lectures that start at five in the afternoon, you have to be there by 10 in the morning. Um, okay. Um, I, 
I don't have that much time to tell you more about his biography, but he's going to become a naturalized French citizen. In 1939, when the Second World War breaks out, he enlists in the French officer corps. He's captured by the Nazis and ultimately um, only survives the Second World War um, because he is captured as a French officer and it's not discovered that he's a Jew. Um, he, he otherwise presumably would have, would have died in the Holocaust. Okay, um, what I want to spend the last few minutes on is that Levinas makes in some ways the most radical move and he says, so if we had Husserl coming out with this intentionality as the bridge between subject and object. So in the beginning, there is the relationship between subject and object. And then Heidegger comes along and says, no, in the beginning, you have Dasein always already thrown into the world, always already in the world. And Levinas is going to radically reorient the grounding point of all ontology, epistemology, and ethics to the relationship between subject and other. It says, in the beginning is intersubjectivity. Um, in the beginning is the relationship between self and other. Um, okay, alterity, and he has this notion of alterity, so otherness you know, as being both radical and grounding. Okay, so in totality and infinity, which is the, the reading I gave you today, you're still beginning with the subject. But what is the grounding point of his philosophy, the moment that shakes us into any kind of knowledge, authenticity, sense of being, is that face-to-face -face relation with the other. What is most, for Levinas, primordial and essential is the relationship with the other. Um, infinity, he contrasts to totality. Infinity, this infinite other world. Totality is opposed to infinity. Infinity is equated with absolute transcendence. So you still, as with Simone de Beauvoir, you still get this idea of transcendence as something being on the other side on the other side of some kind of border. Yeah. Um, and Levinas will say it's not the insufficiency of the eye that prevents totalization, that does not allow the eye to absorb the other, but it is the infinity of the other. The other is radically other, the other is on the other side, the other cannot be possessed, but desire, it's, you're, there's a romantic thing here, but desire, which is also grounding us in the world, not just knowledge, but desire, is desire for the absolutely other. Metaphysical desire, he says, is desire for something else entirely towards the absolutely other. Desire is desire for the absolutely other. Um, and so this, this notion that what is grounding us and what is driving us and what can never be possessed is this face-to-face -face relation. The stranger, he says, who disturbs the being at home with oneself, but the stranger also means the free one. Over him, I have no power. He escapes my grasp by an essential dimension. He is not wholly in my sight. The other cannot be possessed. There's no way to kind of to take the other, to possess the other, to totalize the other in some kind of holistic harmony within our, ourselves. The other represents infinitely other. And what you have here is a coming together of epistemology, ontology, and ethics. 
in which there's no more kind of distinct phase. Because otherness is also fundamentally about ethics. So this involves a calling into question of oneself, a critical attitude which is itself produced in the face of the other. The face-to-face, and face-to-face is a Levinasian idea, the face-to-face remains an ultimate situation. You look the other in the face and you recognize this is infinitely other and desire is a desire for the infinitely other that can never be possessed. Um, I gave you some quotes also from a wonderful essay called Philosophy and Awakening, um, which he, late essay which he writes in 77. And he says, the, me- the explication of the meaning that an ego other than me has for me, primordial me, describes the way in which the other wrenches me from my hypostatus, from the here, at the heart of being or the center of the world where privileged and in this sense primordial I posit myself. But the ultimate meaning of mindness is revealed in this wrenching. Me, I have to see myself from the other's vantage point. I expose myself to the other. I have to render account. So what you see here is Levinas does with the, the, the face-to-face what Husserl does with the reduction, what Shklovsky does with Ostranenya, um, what Heidegger does with being towards death, that moment of shakenness that is the most primordial, fundamental, and illuminating moment. For Levinas, that happens not with the confrontation of death, but with the confrontation of the other the desire for the other who is radical alterity. The other in Levinasian philosophy is essentially analogous to God. It's a kind of secularization of God. Being on the other side, that which can never be reached or possessed, but is always beckoning. Um, and we cannot, be, we cannot be shaken into being ourselves or having any sense of responsibility without that beckoning. Transcendence, he says, transcendence in which perhaps the distinction between transcendence towards the other man and transcendence towards God should not be made too quickly. All right, um, a couple things in the last last minute. So for Levinas, in the beginning, most fundamental is the human relation. Both ethics and subjectivity, ontology, everything Everything requires an other. For Sartre, the other is always looking at me. For Levinas, the other is always calling to me. There's a sense of responsibility. There's a call. There's, there's, there, there's an asking. There's a beckoning. The summons is a call for responsibility. Um, the I needing to account for itself. And so we're moving here from epistemology in Husserl through the ontology we get in Heidegger to something that is... In, in, encompassing those both, but then adding a big ethical thrust to it. There's, it's fundamentally about ethics. Okay. Um, all of these thinkers are deeply affected by, by the war. Um, okay, um, Levinas secularizes God. Edith Stein is going to go in the opposite direction. In the aftermath of the First World War, she converts to Catholicism. Um, when the Nazis take power in 1933, um, she enters a, a Carmelite convent. Um, in the meantime, as she's contemplating this conversion, she steps down from being, being Husserl's assistant. Um, Heidegger then comes and takes her place. He's, he's Husserl's new student. In a June 1918 letter to Ingarden, she writes of going to visit Husserl and saying, on the doorstep, I met the little Heidegger. So the three of us took a long walk, very nice, 
and talked about the philosophy of religion. Um, she's turned away from habilitation, the kind of second doctorate you need in order to be a professor at a German university as a woman. Um, Husserl writes her this recommendation letter that says, if the career of university teaching were supposed to be open to women, then I would be the very first <laughs> to recommend her very warmly. But as we know, it wasn't. Um, and so instead, she joins this Carmelite convent um, shortly after Hitler comes to power. We will return to the little Heidegger and Edith Stein's fate in the Carmelite convent in a subsequent lecture. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.